You're listening to FluxPod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features the writer Erin Vanderhoof. She is a staff writer for Vanity Fair, and uh, she covers a lot of things. We'll get into that. Uh, I happened to talk to Erin on a pretty auspicious day as she finished her first cover story for Vanity Fair, and it was also her birthday. Uh, so I... You know, in that context, very grateful to get her time on this. Uh, this conversation also came out on the same day that my own story for NPR about, uh, I guess, what the headline is calling post-Brexit new wave, uh, like bands like Squid, Dry Cleaning, Black Country, New Road, etc. Uh, that came out. And that's actually the, the, the main topic of this episode. But I actually record a lot with Aaron and... You know, if you want to hear a whole other episode that covers a pretty wide range of things, pretty freeform, where, I mean, we get into Stereolab and Steely Dan on one hand, and then, like, Taylor Swift, Jonas Brothers, you know, uh, you know, on the other side of it, and then in the middle, there's, like, Rockabilly and Beyonce. It's, 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 a, it's quite an episode. If you want to hear that, you got to hit up patreon.com slash fluxblog. $5 a month gets you all the episodes of the show. Uh, all the Patreon episodes come out on Saturdays. Uh, so, But that actual episode came out before this one. So if you just can't get enough Aaron and me talking, you can immediately smash that subscribe button and listen to that episode. Uh, but yeah, uh, this is uh, Aaron Vanderhoof. Uh, we're going to talk about British music. Oh, we're also going to like landfill indie. That's an interesting topic to you. We're going to get into that a bit. But uh, here we go. Aaron Vander. Aaron, can you tell the audience who you are and what you do? Um, so I'm Erin Vanderhoof. I am a staff writer at Vanity Fair, where I have been for about four years now, uh, doing like a variety of jobs and a little bit of everything. But right now, my main focuses are, uh, you know, doing interviews with people that we think are really interesting and covering the royal family, which is <laughs> a very, it's a funny, it's a funny thing to like find yourself at the age of 28 being like, ah, I know every single thing about Meghan Markle, but it's been, it has been really fun. So was, was Meghan Markle like how you got on that beat? Well, it just so happened that I started working at Vanity Fair. Like the first full issue of Vanity Fair that I helped out with was the issue that Meghan Markle was on the cover of. So it was mainly like a coincidence, but I think I I don't think that I would have ever like there's no way that I would be doing this if it wasn't for the fact that Meghan Markle and I have like very similar life stories. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, so so you're royalty now as well. Like of, of what of what nation? Ah, uh, yes, exactly. Uh, of Brooklyn, of Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Everybody, okay. every all the all the adults yell at me. They're like, "You look like a teenager. Why aren't you in school?" <laughs> <laughs> so wait, how, how did you end up at Vanity Fair? Was uh, what what was your path to that? I've done a little bit of everything. So f- after college, I was a middle school teacher, which I was just dreadful at like I loved I love the kids and I'm like I have like a lot of fun hanging out with 13 year olds but I don't like I don't like teaching I don't like enforcing rules 
Um, so after that, I knew I wanted to be uh, a, I knew I wanted to be a writer. So I got a job at a butcher shop, started freelancing, um, and was able to sort of like get a foothold in freelancing. But then and started working. I worked at Lapin's Quarterly for a while. Uh, like you know, went through a couple of temp jobs, and then just when I was getting to the point where I was just like, ugh, like I don't know if I want to keep you know, working in restaurants or coffee shops and, you know, was thinking, what if I just move home to New Mexico? I wound up uh, getting introduced to somebody who worked at Vanity Fair and was looking for somebody who had like, you know, knowledge of the back catalog, was interested in writing and just sort of like enthusiastic about doing whatever comes. And so I got a job as a producer, but, you know, being the kind of person that I can't I can't leave well enough alone. So I'm just always like, (laughs) I'm always like inserting myself where I don't necessarily need to be. And eventually that led to like doing editing and writing and all kinds of things. And then just last fall, like I was promoted to staff writer. Yeah. And you were telling me before this, we have to keep this a secret, but you just wrapped your first cover story, which is huge. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's one of those things that like, it makes you feel like, for the whole time you're working on it, you're like, did why did I choose to do this as my job? But then the second that it's done, you're like, oh, wow, like, I'm pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, once it comes out, you'll be you'll, you'll get the opportunity to just kind of like bask in that glow and, and a good bragging rights for a while, at least. My parent, my parents are the ones I feel like I actually do kind of all of this for my parents because they like appreciate my uh, successes and like so much more than I do. <laughs> I remember you saying on Twitter something about like your parents is having like a very huge fascination with like New York media without having any connection to it. I mean, I guess besides you now being in it. Yeah. I don't know. It is so like specifically that was like when all of that stuff was happening at Teen Vogue that they were really fascinated. And I think it's partially like in the same way that they're fascinated by Meghan Markle because she like looks like their daughter. Like they were also kind of fascinated in it for that reason. But I think in general, like if you're just like a smart person in Albuquerque, New Mexico, like, like the only thing there is to, for you to do is just like find other parts of the country to like be weirdly <laughs> like invested in. <laughs> so, that, so that's what they do. You know, so you, you but you mentioned like you had like a, a pre-existing, I guess, fandom of Vanity Fair that kind of factored into you being hired there. Oh, yeah. So my grandmother was a subscriber for a long time. And like when I was really little, she just like liked to keep old copies of magazines and would always come up with like ways to keep me like occupied while I was at her house and involved reading magazines. So I was like reading a lot of Vanity Fair and the other magazine she loved was Ladies Home Journal. So I, (laughs) I can like tell you everything about what was in Vanity Fair and Ladies Home Journal from like you know, like 1990 to like 1999. I know everything about the Mikagi septuplets that that was, they were like cover stars of Ladies Home Journal every single year. Is she still around to appreciate this? She's not. Unfortunately, she passed like right before I started college, but it's, it's one of those things that I know that she would be very, with anything, I feel like she'd be the only person who would like really criticize, like when I like write something bad. So (laughs) I like, I kind of miss that, but, but yeah, I feel like it's, it, you know, I didn't know what I like for a long time. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer 
And now when I, when I look back on myself as a child, I just cannot even imagine that I ever thought I was going to do anything other than writing for magazines. Like magazines is the only thing I like cared about as a kid. Yeah. That's a good origin story. This stuff having like, I mean, I think it kind of, I mean, I was really into magazines and all these things when I was a kid too. So it's like, it's not like the biggest leap. You know, it's it's like, OK, I don't know if I would have really thought of it as being like a goal up until even to like my mid 20s. I didn't really start like writing for money until like my mid 20s. And that's like at least four years, three or four years after starting my own site. It was, it was like an after effect of all of that. Yeah, I think I think what it is, is like I've always been like a real voyeur and like tried to understand what it is that other people are interested in and like what motivates them. And like the way that I kind of satisfied that as a kid and as a teenager was through reading magazines. And then I realized that like at a certain point as an adult, like there are certain questions you can only ask if you have like <laughs> a reason to ask them. <laughs> and so it's like, that's always been the best way to kind of satisfy the fact that I'm just like very fascinated by like people and their foibles. Wait, what's a good magazine question that you couldn't just ask, like, someone that you're just talking to? Well, I think the very basic one is just, like, oh, so, like, why did you do that? Or what were you thinking about when you did that? Mm. You know, there's a certain, like, real question. Like, I feel like in conversation, it's always really weird if you allow too much. Like, I guess the way that I always say it is, like, if you have a question that somebody then would respond with, that's a good question to buy themselves a little bit of time to think about what it is they want to say. Like, that's too much for regular conversation. It doesn't, like, build camaraderie. It just, you know, it's it's the kind of thing you can only do because you're putting somebody on the spot. That's a good question is such a good response in that way, because usually they're actually not good questions <laughs> when people respond that way. Like I, def I definitely have heard like interviews on, on like podcasts and things like that, that'll have that kind of response. But it really is like the most perfect way of buying time while also flattering your interrogator. Totally flattering. And I'm pretty sure that that's like what press training, like people teach you to say, that's a good question when you don't know what you're about to say next. Yeah. Well, a thing that we have in common is uh, I just finished writing this thing for NPR about this like new crop of British bands who <laughs> largely speak sing and it's all kind of tangentially related to post-punk in some way, shape or form. And uh, I think I guess you have something in the works on this general topic as well. Yes, I do. Well, I am working on something about the new Black Midi album and, you know, have plans to talk to them soon so that's probably what it's going to turn into but essentially I've been like sitting with this album for a while and and I'm I'm really fascinated by black midi as a phenomenon and then kind of in addition to that the fact that there are like a lot of other young British rock bands and so kind of I, I liked the way that you you raised the question on Twitter and then you know put it in the piece which is that there is definitely something happening, but like, why is it so hard for everybody to talk about what's happening? Like no one is yes. talking about this. And the, the crazy thing is like, even like today, like I've found or, or learned about like, I think maybe six or seven artists who probably should have been mentioned in this thing. Cause there are just so many. And it's just crazy to think that there's like, like 
40 bands in the UK and Ireland who have like a, a similar aesthetic and no one has given it a name yet. Well, I think what's so notable about it too is that when I was going to say you, you like the people that to me, I think have made me the most excited about this were specifically like Goat Girl and Shame and Shame you had the picture of, but I don't know if you talked about them too much and Goat Girl wasn't in it, but it's like, I think that you're, I think that you're right to identify that the core of it is the talk singing and everybody does that. Yeah. But I think that what's really cool is that they are, it seems like the only thing they all really have in common is that they are young people from the UK who found themselves in London over the last few years. And yeah, or like, I think that there's a lot from Brighton. Yes. Yes. A a lot of, a lot of people from Brighton. um, But they just, I think that it's, it's like something about them all making music that, well, so as a, before, before I was a Royal reporter, I have always been an Anglophile as embarrassing that as that has been for me my whole life. Um, but I'm always really fascinated by the moments when, because I think, because we speak the same language, I think that it's really easy for Americans to forget like how profoundly different England is. And what I think has been really fascinating about thinking back with these people, or like, I always think it's really fascinating when you think about the times when British music and American music diverge. And yeah. I think that what I'm finding really interesting about this is that there's not a an American counterpart that is as organized that is doing sort of like calling on the same touchstones and, you know, working the same tradition. And so it feels really particularly British to me. I am invincible in these sunglasses. I am the fonz. I am the jack of hearts. I am looking at you and you cannot tell I am more than the sum of my parts. I am looking at you with my best eyes and I wish you could tell. I wish all my kids would stop dressing up like Richard Hell. I am locked away in a high-tech wraparound translucent blue tinted fortress and you cannot touch me. Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier today as I was walking around and this was still kind of rattling in my head. But... Like what? So what is the American version of this? And it's so hard to say because I mean there there's a fun as you say like there's a fundamental difference between these nations. Uh, United States being gigantic, like well bigger and just geographically diverse, but I think also the culture of the United States is it doesn't really allow for these kind of scenes to grow in the same way unless it's kind of confined to like one specific city. And that kind of has not been happening as much for a long time. Uh, certainly not with like any kind of unity that like, I might be wrong with this. Like as far, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty aware of things, but I was thinking like, well, what is, if there is something in the United States, like what I think more of those groups kind of are going for a completely different energy that's much more sedate and much more like psychedelic. I'm thinking of like, like Crumb and like, and uh, there's other bands similar to Crumb where it's more like dissociative, whereas this is more angry. And it makes sense for like those to be the responses to Brexit and Trump, you know, yeah. I mean, or, like broadly speaking. Well, I think a thing, a thing that, and I, I think I was thinking about it in that those terms a lot too, before I did realize that 
you know, partially because Britain is so much smaller, it's possible, you know, it's possible to get coverage from major outlets and magazines there, even if you're not that big in a way that it's not quite possible here. But like, it wasn't until I had a moment, I actually kind of, I made a joke about this in a meeting, which then immediately led to my joke being kind of like taken seriously. So this is why you should never joke and always be totally serious. But I said like, <laughs> oh, like the kind of the closest equivalent that we have to this right now is Greta Van Fleet. <laughs> And oh so, God! Well, the think of it as kind of like as a as a, a a bit retro, yeah. Yeah, or at least insofar as it is like young people making rock music that is resonating like way more than it might be intended to. You know, it's like that. Yeah, they weren't well, well, very physical. Yes, yes. Well, whereas I think a lot of the rock aligned music of the past ten years is like weirdly non physical. Yeah, or I think well. So I have this this thing that I uh, I I for the last couple of years I've been realizing that like oh if music like made by guitars is on a continuum like a lot of younger American people are making things that are much closer to country music than mm-hmm. to. I don't know. See, the thing of the thing about the continuum that's difficult is that the other side is like a question mark. So it's like the continuum from like question mark to country music. But so I feel like, but even if you think about people like, so I guess, so to me, I think that the thing that really marks all of these bands is that, and why maybe it's, it's funny today is my birthday. I'm 29 now. And oh, happy is, birthday. Wow. Thank this you. is a huge day for you. I know. Finishing that story and becoming 29, <laughs> of course, being on the show. Exactly. No, <laughs> seriously. Very, very big day for me. But, um, you know, I, I think this is the first time that there's like a wave of musicians that I love. I really like just I'm obsessed with, but like all of them are much younger than me. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess most of these artists are kind of like, right on that cusp of, of uh, Zoomer, I guess. Yeah, well, no, I think it's not even cusp. Like, they're, they're firmly in Zoomer territory. And I but think... Where, where is the border right now? Like, I guess, like, people who would be, like, 24 or so would be the oldest? Yeah, people who are 24 are the oldest Zoomers. Or 25. So they're all 25 under now. 24. Yeah, they're all under... Most of them are under 25, Yeah. And like a, a significant number of them are like kind of sick drummers, which was pretty uh, scarce for a while. Yeah, that's the other part is that it's like people who are really technically, technically adept. Well, and I think I think that a lot and maybe even too much has been made of the fact that um, like most of the members of Black Midi met because they were at the Brit School, the like really prestigious but like um, state funded art school, the one that like produced. Adele but like they do I think what's what I think is really fascinating about them is that they managed to both like combine like sort of like dorky technical adeptness and dorky inspirations and make it come off feeling really really cool and unique and I think a lot of those bands have like very clear chops but like it doesn't sound overly choppy I mean the new Black Midi record which I guess is coming out I think in June now is that am I right about that? I think it's, it's, last, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit off from now. Last last week of this month. Okay. Yeah, but like I, I they gave me an advance and like I ended up like not including them in this story 
largely because that record was like, oh, this is a different thing. This is related. And like, they're definitely part of this whole thing. But for the purposes of this story, which I'm trying to like, have it be a little bit more narrow. Like this is this is a prog band. This band is like way closer to like King Crimson. And to bring them into this complicates everything a lot. Oh, yeah, totally. Sonny boy, backed only by accordion. Three rows of pale brunettes protect him from the crowd. And the curtain is a patchwork of imitation vermilion. And a red bar hangs over the throne that has been found. This is a scene on Mastry when John 50 comes to town. Well, and I think I think that like to to put a political reading on black media just like wouldn't make any sense. And I think that what that what your piece did that I think is really at least like a really good intervention is like differentiate it or is at least to like think about the way that that like British identity being called into question by Brexit is like a lyrical preoccupation for that group of bands you did focus on. Yeah. And I think even when it's like not like foregrounded, it's like that shame and that like it's, it's the emotional reality that kind of connects all of them. And like some of those bands are more comedic, like courting and yard act are definitely more funny, but it's still like all in there. It's all like this idea that like, it's not like no future, but like, it's more like, Oh, the future is going to be very bad. Yeah. <laughs> There's, we're only like that song by, uh, by courting. I like a lot. Uh, pop shop is basically that this is a band that has like seven songs released. And one of them is about like being incredibly cynical about the music industry to the point of like, why are we even doing this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to sort of get away is what I'm wanting. I mean, not to, like, you know, put, well, and I feel like that's being, being now, like, you know, like I said, like the first time that I'm really, really looking back, not just then at these bands, but like a lot of, a lot of people, like the first time that I, you know, I spend a lot of time on TikTok and I feel like this is like the first time I've like really looked back on culture and been like, ah, yes, like not the first time I've been like, this isn't intended for me, but more like, ah, yes, like this is a conversation happening entirely among younger people it's a it's a first time that the real world has felt like being a teacher a middle school teacher which is what I was for two years and it's you know all of those kids were Gen Z and so I guess it kind of it makes sense but it's it's that like yeah I think that as a generation like they're a lot more comfortable with being kind of like with that kind of like nihilism 
but it's like it's I guess what, what what do people call it now like like toxic positivity it's like that's that's not a, a, a yeah trend. I mean well, if there's anything that I've noticed about this whole cohort is using uh like the ironic use of girl boss of like, really puncturing that whole like 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 that that whole set of enthusiasms that whole like read on feminism and capitalism it's but yeah it's always like that looking at like this optimism and be like oh come on this can you just be cool it, like, i mean they're definitely the children of gen xers like there's so many ways that it's just like that and it's just kind of come back around and like i am basically like the youngest gen xer yeah or the or the <laughs> and, youngest millennial I, I, oh, I think I'm technically more the old, old the youngest Gen Xer. I'm like, but I am really on that edge, and mm-hmm. I've lived like my whole life just kind of like between those two cohorts and not really belonging to either. But definitely, the culture that I was raised on was Gen X culture, and <laughs> I think having the, the Zoomers kind of like like gradually get some cultural uh, purchase is like, oh, I, I appreciate this because it's like, it's, I, I think I have like more philosophical uh, similarities because, I mean, I definitely relate to growing up with the sense that like, oh, the future is not going to be that good. Like your future might be good, but like on a broad level. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like, I think like the, that's something that those two cohorts have in common of that idea of like, don't expect too much. Don't expect too much. Well, and what's so funny, I feel like what's so funny about it too is that that it, and maybe that's that's why so many millennials, like, we. I feel like we've now, like, as a generation come to identify as the people who have been sort of, like, shortchanged. But it is true. Like, I think that, like, history is ended. Vibes were, like, very or like you know like being raised by parents who I, I, I hate to I hate to reduce everything at, down to like generational stuff but I really do think that like people who had smartphones in like childhood just like had a very and like social media was something like their parents were on just like have a very different relationship to like identity and not like identity in the like, Oh, like what is your identity? But just like, Oh, how does one go around becoming a person than I do? <laughs> but it is fun. So it is, I guess it's, it's been really fun to see, to bring it, you know, back to rock in the UK. It's been really fun to see a, a group of people take whatever it is that I think distinguishes me from people who are younger than me, but dress it up in a lot of the like rock history and like, you know, UK sort of tropes that I've like, you know, always found so appealing on their own. And so I think that's like why I personally have become so invested in listening to these bands. Like definitely the the shame record drunk tank pink, I think is my favorite of this year so far because it is just like so fun and angry and syncopated and catchy i just oh i love it so much i love that song nigel hitter that one has such great uh syncopated parts in it like the wheels on a bus it just keeps on turning and as the cream gets wet up but it keeps on churning it just goes on it just goes on 
like such a great like album to listen through like it's a great one to just put on (laughs) it's funny like that record i think i kind of ignored initially but then once i realized it was part of this bigger thing it started becoming a lot more uh i got it a lot more like having that context of its relationship to these other things uh did a lot Mm -hmm. for me well i think i think i always at the beginning of the year i always try to like you know, I always try to like seek out as much first quarter indie as I can. Um, first quarter indie. Oh my God. I'm glad to hear someone else say that. Cause first quarter indie really is a whole thing that has a whole lineage. I totally, I'm totally stealing that. I don't think I knew the, I didn't have a phrase for it until I heard it from you. So I'm, I'm taking that from you. Oh, okay. but, uh, but yeah, definitely. I think that there is a sense in which like, the traditional indie music pu- like publicity cycles. If you're like, if your goal is to get your client at a festival slot, and if your goal is t- you can't, you have to put the album out later. You can't put it out in January. And if your goal is to get your client on a year end list, you can't put it out after December. And so, like, what kind of happens between? like December and March is always really fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's the time for like the, the smaller things to shine. Yeah. And then there's just like less new quote unquote new music so that it forces you to like, for me, I always have fun. Like I think I spend the most time listening to things that I wouldn't have expected at that point in time. But for me, shame was a first quarter of 2018 first quarter indie discovery. Oh, I, I didn't even, I definitely did not know them then. Oh, yeah, it was, like, very, it was, or, like, yeah, it just didn't get, because it was first quarter indie then, it was, like, very, I, I, it got, it got yeah. more coverage in, like, The Guardian in them, but, like, not, I don't think it was made as much of an impact in the U.S. Yeah, but that new one definitely got a, a good jolt of attention, which is, I think, kind of uh, heralding things to come in this yeah. year. Well, I, and I think it's just been nice. I mean, maybe the real thing that has changed is not the kids or like rock in the UK, but me and that I like after one whole year spent in my house exclusively listening to Steely Dan. I'm excited. Well, let's, let's put a pin in that. We'll come back to Steely Dan. I'm excited Dan. about, I, I like. This is a very Dan pin. Oh, oh, I'm aware. Oh, I'm aware. <laughs> but yeah, it's been, I feel like I kind of had to have a moment where I was like, okay, okay, I, I have to, I have to remind myself that music is, is exists again. Well, but, but so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about like what American music reminds me the most of this stuff. And it's like the closest thing, like the, the album that I would say like, ah, uh, like could, sounds the most like this would probably be that Bartiz Strange one from last year. Oh, yeah, that's a good but, point. But he's he's neither, like, young nor British. And I think that that, like, you know, so it's like you wouldn't, you would never group it in with that. But I do think that it's like, it's not like they're the only people thinking about that. But it is, 
you know, it's like the similar energy, similar, similar energy but it not, it's not emo-y. Like their stuff is not emo-y at all. Whereas I feel like there is like a fun kind of emo-y like edge to Barty Strange. I've been thinking about like what the American response to this British stuff is going to be. Cause you know, it's, it's going to come. And I keep like cringing because I just imagine it being like way more emo because I think that it's very hard to kind of remove emo DNA from like a whole generation of American musicians. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think, well, think about like the band idols who I think have, it's I'm, I can't quite explain it, but they are like very popular here. Um, among people i don't think what they're doing is emo but i do think that people who like also like emo are some of the people who are it's kind of hardcore yeah exactly exactly like insofar as like you know like insofar as emo and hardcore have similar roots like they are really uh, hardcore adjacent Oh, the thing that we, I feel like I can't even believe I've gone this long without even bringing up the, the, to me, the specter that haunts British rock and is Landfill Indie. Oh, yeah. Landfill Indie is definitely the, uh, it it does seem like something that a lot of these people grew up on. And, but I think, especially like the things that are more like the editors or like the more like jagged kind of like, post-punk versions but i think they're really like rejecting it too because i think that a lot of like the biggest complaint about landfill india is that it's very boring (laughs) it's just (laughs) exceptionally boring and i think none of these bands would i like they even when they get like spacey or experimental they're never boring and like you know i would never say that at any point in time editors was experimental Wait, so we should say what Landfill Indie is. Uh, so the, which magazine coined it? Was the NME? Um, I'm not entirely sure who coined it, but definitely I think it's from, it's from England. England. Vice UK, I think, is the people who have like kind of. Oh, I think I think you're right. I think it is Vice UK. But the idea is that it's like all of like the kind of British bands that just kind of come up. They'll have a couple songs or like one record that does okay. And it doesn't really do anything (laughs) it's just kind of like bands that exist and the cds just end up in a landfill it it wasn't until uh, i think when they did like a a package last year which was they had coined it a long time ago but then they did a package or it wasn't yeah i think it was maybe last year it was like what was landfill indie where they had johnny worrell from the band razor light who was one of the bands that i think is like now kind of considered landfill indie and he like you know admitted it but i think specifically the like you know, macroeconomic conditions that were making this happen is that a lot of these bands from like outlying areas who maybe had like a couple of songs were getting signed to really big labels at the time when labels were like looking to cash in, but weren't really putting a lot of money into artist development. And so like what you had is like a lot of bands who were getting like promotion, like lowest common denominator promotional dollars. So like their best song you like heard all the time, but like didn't, 
have a lot of like investment putting in put into like actually building a career or like differentiating themselves. Yeah, like songs that might end up in a beer club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's that one that's like da 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 da. da. Which oh, band yeah, is that? What is that? <laughs> well, the way you were saying that, it kind of sounded like Holiday by Green Day, but I know that's not what you. <laughs> no, no, yeah, but, no, no, but it's, it's literally guys going da 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 da. da. It's like, oh god, it's right on the tip of my tongue. many of them and I was so committed to it as like a it's funny I around the time I started reading your blog when I was in high school was like when I was like weaning myself off of landfill indie so right I was and I was about to say like this is like it's basically a whole like like uh, like after the fact a genre made of all the things that I would never write about <laughs> and like if there's anything that kind of connects these bands it's that like People like me just did not care about them or at all. <laughs> I just didn't pay attention to them at all. Um, and it's also kind of like, um, it's it's sort of like a yacht rock in that it's not really a genre so much as like something to make sense of the past. You have this term that kind of, just to kind of make you understand like these things that like loosely go yeah, together. Yeah, like the, and also, and especially I think when- It's also kind of a joke at the, of the, of the artist. Oh yeah, expense. totally. And I think that that's kind of what, well, I think I kind of feel the same way about it as I did about, as I do about, you know, the moment in the late 90s in the US when like major labels were signing so many like alternative rock bands, weirdly. And it's like, you you look back at it now and you're like, why did anybody think that this was going to ever like earn back in advance? But, you know, it wasn't the band's fault that the labels were like, you know, mining for content. It, it, but so... But it means that they like didn't get the support that they might have gotten if they had been a part of a scene or had been with a smaller label that was like more interested in like not mining for content. Yeah, and this happens in waves, you know. Like this happened in the wake of Nirvana. Mm-hmm. So, so like a lot. Then this happens in the wake of you know, you know in the wake of Oasis, and then this would be I guess what would be like post Arctic Monkeys. Yes, I, guess? I would say that, or I feel like Arctic Monkeys was like the post oasis like what can we do next and then because arctic monkeys who are who are quite good uh like did find the success that they did then it just like people kept on doing it but so the the question that i've had since since i kind of brought that up in, in that twitter thread but you were saying like you know of course you you don't want to like give people a genre name that is insulting to them which is a very good point but i do wonder what this like generation of people's relationship would be to things like oasis and blur and you know just like all Britpop because i i feel like one of the things that i like about it is that it is really not it's not like rejecting it but it's really not influenced by it yeah Britpop's a good term too because it is geographically specific Mm -hmm. And I feel like what is happening now is also geographically specific. Exactly. Maybe it's just maybe it's just Brit Rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I won't. I will. I cannot. I cannot stand behind I that. Mean, that was a joke. 
the, the thing that I did for NPR, like the, I can't remember, it was not the editor, but someone else in NPR editorial suggested the, the, the main title they went with, which was like, uh, what was the, like the post-Brexit new wave. And like once like that was there, I was like, I can see that catching on. I was deliberately not trying to name the thing, but that would work. Or I think like one of my friends called it like Brex Wave <laughs> to kind of like bring it down. And like Brex Wave kind of sounds cool, but I think a lot of these people would also like to not have to be like totally tethered to this thing that they're repulsed by. Yeah. Well, but I think also well, I think with the thing that with I think I think that you were <laughs> it would be, it would be like if the, the original post rock was uh, post punk was called Thatch Wave. Thatch wave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but I think I think that you were really astute to identify that that is like definitely a like lyrical preoccupation of theirs but at the same time I like I think that well I mean it's you know then you're kind of getting into like counterfactuals but like I don't know I, I think that what would be happening in terms of like making music would be happening kind of independent of the of the political climate I just think I mean maybe it's like the way that we but like I said, it's clearly. A little, I, I think a that's true on, on a musical level, because yeah. I, I mean, I do think that some of this is also just kind of like, again, like like a, a lot of just kind of like not particularly physical rock music for a while, and it just makes sense for the pendulum to swing the other way. And I, I think that pendulum will swing the other way in other areas too, but maybe not in the same way. So, so I was thinking about this. Like, I mean, I think, I mean, just to finish that thought, like there's a lot of like, uh, I think there's more like younger American bands that kind of lean a bit more like alt rock. You know, I think there's like, you know, like, you know, your soccer mommies and Biba doobies and all these things that are a little bit more like American alt rock, which makes sense for that to be the form that's, that goes in. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's funny that you're off to, be sure to remember this, this, the soccer mommy thing. But I, so I think that one of the things that the reason why at least, well, and then you kind of just like come back to the idea that, yeah, Britain and America, though similar, are very different. But like, I think that the reason why I'd be hesitant to say that Brexit is like causal is because it kind of feels like the same thing as like, oh man, punk music's going to get so good under Trump. And it just really didn't. It just like did not. And you know, like, I think, I think, yeah, I think bad things that happen in the culture are like great lyrical fodder, but they don't always work as like musical fodder. Yeah. Oh. But if you look at like the American music of of like the post-Trump era, like music that would have, you know, like you can't really expect the music of 2017 to really speak to it. But like once you get to 18, 19, 20, and like so much of that music is like this kind of this dejected, like dour, uh, sad, slow, like disassociating. And like that all speaks, I think, to how americans have processed a lot of i think this. that's right but so so to me i would say that like the person in america that at least age wise and well the two people i'd say most that age wise and sort of like rock wise both would like fit into this the most but their music is so different is soccer mommy and phoebe bridgers and you know, Soccer Mommy is just like, you know, very, very like radio rock inspired, at least specifically the the last album. But yeah. uh, and Phoebe Bridgers, I think, is like, yeah, a lot. Well, she's she's kind of sweet generous. She's her own thing. But I, I think of her as kind of being the ultimate example of that kind of like 
flat depression. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I, I mean, so it's it it is once again, it's like the difference between England and the UK. We speak the same language, but we react very differently to things. And even if we both kind of did weird political shit at the same time. <laughs> There's that line in the Legs song that I quote in the article that goes like, uh, if I was American, my experience, they would shape me. But because I am British, it only makes me tired. And I think that explains a lot, like in a macro sense, because I think the uh, the, the British... Well, I mean, what is like the, the big difference between like Trump and Brexit is I think Trump is really... And, and everything that kind of has come from that and all the things that have happened since that aren't even really to do with him it's just like this sense that american exceptionalism has ended and everyone has sort of processed this like it's not you know it was something that was starting to fade away but now is just kind of like it's broken there's no one who really believes in that the way they used to but the british this is nothing new to them so like having like yet another bad thing happen it's just kind of like it just makes you tired it doesn't really shape you if i was an american my experiences they would have shaped me but because i am british they only make me tired is society really at risk the elders seem to think so growing ever fearful of the adolescents staying against the personal limit we should that like the thing that Brexit and Trump really have in common is just like a wide or just like a wide swath of like people whose lives have been pretty comfortable even if like the narrative was kind of negative deciding like fuck consequences like we love chaos who cares (laughs) (laughs) and so I think that it's like yeah that it, it I think if anything like the and so, so then I think this has kind of support your case, which is that I think that there's, I mean, and I feel it, but I think it's even more acute among people who are younger than me that are just like the people who are older than us just like are ridiculous and like do not deserve to be listened to in any way. Yes. Right. I think in both cases you get like cultural villains and like the British stuff is definitely responding to cultural villains. There's songs where it's just kind of like sung from, from the perspective of some like rich tool. Like, I mean, the, the best example of that would be like the song Fixer Upper by Yard Act, which is just like, you know, you're just talking to some absolute tool named Graham. <laughs> I love that they named him Graham. It's a, it's a transatlantic toolish name. Mate, sorry about the commotion yesterday The bloody builders are refusing to finish the job until I pay them But I told them no one pulls a fast one on Graham I'm Graham, by the way, don't know if I mentioned I told them I'm not made of money, you're having a laugh Two owns in a rover comes from our ground I'm not minted, I earn it It's not some funny voodoo well, Aaron, thank you so much for doing this, especially on your birthday, no less. Yes, thank you. This is it's my dream to be on a podcast. So, 
Too much to ask about. So don't ask. Don't ask. 